Hello and welcome to episode two of The Ear of the Other, a literary podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with the authors of recently published books of literature, criticism and biography. Your hosts are me, Thomas Knowles, and my colleague, Peter Jackson. My name is Thomas Knowles, and I will be your host today. I am joined by Professor David Roberts, who is here to talk about his forthcoming biography of the Restoration dramatist George Farquhar, published by Bloomsbury Academic. David is Executive Dean of the Arts, Design and Media at Birmingham City University, where he is also Pro Vice-Chancellor. He is a National Teaching Fellow and author of works including Restoration Plays and Players for Cambridge University Press, uh, Thomas Betterton, the greatest actor of, Re- of the Restoration stage, also for Cambridge University Press, and numerous articles on English drama and prose between 1600 and 1770. David also recently co-authored a book on games for English literature with Isabella Hopkins. David, welcome. Hello, thank you very much, Tom. Pleased thank to you be for, here. Thank you for coming. Um, let's start out with the subject of your most recent work. Um, mm. Why George Farker? Uh, well, what is his interest for a contemporary theatre-goer uh, and or student or scholar, would you okay. say? Um, why George Farquhar first? Um, I think every project I do arises in some way from the previous project. Uh, so in this case, the book you just referred to, Restoration Plays and Players, was a survey of the whole restoration drama period. Uh, And the parts of it where I was writing about Farquhar, I suddenly got intrigued, as you do. There was nothing quite rational about it. I got interested in the idea of somebody writing in that period who was very clearly writing about himself in all sorts of sometimes tangential, sometimes very direct ways. And that struck me as quite interesting in a period where the tradition of criticism now is for people to take very business-oriented or very formalist or very rather sort of philosophical views of the drama and what it does. So it struck me that there was a little problem there I wanted to nag away at. Uh, There is actually a slightly longer term answer as well, which is that I was in a Farquhar play when I was a postgraduate student. We always fondly imagine that postgraduate students spend their time in libraries and poring over theses. Well, I did all of that, and I'm afraid I was rather irresponsible and appeared in lots of plays as well. (laughs) So I did actually appear in The Bose Stratagem, which was Farquhar's last play, and I appeared as the uh, elder brother of the character Mrs. Sullen, who comes to rescue her at the end from her miserable marriage in, in the country. And actually that set me uh, rather loving something about Farquhar. Uh, and that, that comes to the second part of the question. The thing that's always been distinctive about him from dramatists of that period, dramatists who usually write just about London, they write about sophisticated metropolitan people who find it rather funny that there are these incomers from rural parts, from you know different countries, whether it's from Ireland or France or wherever. Um, Farquhar isn't like that. He writes about the provinces. So the Bose stratagem is, as I describe it in the book, surely the best play ever set in Litchfield. And then you've got the recruiting officer, probably his, you know, his best known play now, which is set in and around Shrewsbury. And this has always been very appealing to modern directors and to theatre audiences, the idea that 
there's a dramatist of that time who stands completely outside the norm. And it's not just that he takes the trouble to write about non-metropolitan places and people. He writes about them without any sense of being patronising. You know, they are, for him, normal, hospitable, interesting people. Uh, and to a significant extent, when I see Farquhar produced today in modern theatres, that's what people find in his work, a kind of inclusivity, a generosity. Uh, the extra thing that I found through delving into Farquhar's life and work more is, the, is one of the two really important and I think original things about the book, which is that while you can write what you like about the relationship of life to work and you know we run through all of those um, long-standing arguments about intentionalism and how far literary works can be viewed as autobiographical and so on and so forth. Um, it is an unmistakable fact that Farquhar was a migrant. He migrated from Dublin to London um, and throughout his work he wrote about the experience of migration, whether it's in essays, letters, plays, whatever it is. Um, so in a sense his, the, the, the question of whether the life is related to the work is an irrelevant one at the level of detail, but vitally important in the sense that Farquhar did actually undergo the experiences that, you know, his characters explore. And of course, you know, migration today is one of the hottest political topics. It seemed to me really interesting to bring that sense of contemporary relevance to um, an area which quite often is just dominated by historicism. You know, people who study restoration theatre, they look at the politics of the time, they look at the stagecraft of the time, the fact that you had these innovations, the first actresses to appear professionally on the English stage, the first painted scenery, all of those things. Well, that's great and it's all fascinating, but it doesn't really chime with contemporary experience in the way representations of migrant life do. So that was really the, that was the steer for the book. Thank you, David. That's um, so many threads to pick up on there. Um, yeah, sorry. You've, you've anticipated <laughs> actually a couple of my um, subsequent questions, Oops. but that's great. Um, so what, uh, let, let's pick up on the, the thread of, uh, of Farkar's um, individual experience as, as what you quite eloquently describe as something in between mm. an immigrant and emigrant. Mm. Um, and what fascinated me in your opening chapter is your dis your discussion of uh, of those um, dedicatory passages, which yeah. Dryden was the possibly mm. the master of that form mm. um, in the period. What was it about Farker that meant that he just couldn't um, ingratiate uh, in the way that he perhaps should have? <laughs> I think yes. Yeah. Well, the, the dedicatory epistles are really interesting um, texts. Um, and they're very often simply not read. Um, students, when they encounter either a Renaissance or a Restoration play, will skip over and go straight to the beginning of the play, possibly without realising that this apparatus of both the dedication to a noble patron you hope will support you, will give money for the privilege of having their name in print, uh, but also the prefaces to readers you get, which is more of a defence of the work to a a general audience. Those are absolutely key texts in 
Partly in marketing the book, you can't say that they're statements of intention because they are designed to create a certain effect that will make the book interesting to readers. But they are a key index of the kind of networks that writers inhabited. Now, yes, you absolutely with, you know, other writers in the Restoration period enjoyed tremendous successes with dedicating their work. So Dryden, who you mentioned, Congreve, um, even relatively minor writers like Thomas Otway, Nathaniel Lee, they had huge success in establishing very clear uh, patronal links, even with members of the royal family, as high up as that. <clears throat> Farquhar was a million miles away from being able to do that. <clears throat> and you could argue that the answers are simple. <clears throat> One, that he was always an outsider. He was an Arivist. He hadn't had time to develop the kind of networks that you needed in order even to get a look in at the high table, so to speak. The other is he very quickly um, acquired a reputation for being rather cheeky and vulgar. Mm. Um, you describe him as being spurned by that kind of coffee shop culture of the well, restoration. Um, and just but there's uh, something sort yeah. of self-sabotaging almost, isn't yeah. there, in some of his, uh, his, his epistles. So. Yeah, yeah. And if you got that sense that if you, you know, OK, if I'm not allowed to belong, then I'm just going to take the mickey out of the rest of you. And that's how I'll find my niche. But as you say, it is a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that the more he does that, the more he's going to be despised, of course, and the more he's therefore going to end up falling back on all of the stereotypes of wandering Irishmen that people were only too keen to deploy against him. So he, um, yes, he does get stuck in this state of in-betweenness. He has emphatically left Dublin behind, although... Interestingly, um, at one stage of his career, he does go back there and tries to resurrect a theatrical career in Dublin. Mm -hmm. um, he went back in almost certainly in 1704. His brother had a book selling business there. It appears to be the case that he tried to persuade his brother to get interested in sponsoring that magnificent thing called the complete works of Mr. George Farquhar, which was rather grandiose of him since by then he'd only written five not terribly good plays and handfuls of other stuff. Um, and his brother said no. <laughs> Imagine how that felt. So what he did instead back in Dublin was to um, appear in one of his own plays, The Constant Couple, which was the biggest, actually the biggest success of his lifetime, mm -hmm. his second play. Um, he had written the main part for his friend Robert Wilkes, but he took it, he took the main part back in Dublin. Um, and it was obviously a disaster, you know, he, <laughs> he wasn't an actor. Do you think that acting, that experience of acting though, comes out in his mm -hmm. work? I mean, some commentators yeah. have suggested that, haven't they? So, yeah. Um, He's very, Farquhar, just as he's very generous towards people who don't live in London, he's very generous to actors who don't have the main part. So he has an instinctive sense of what an opportunity looks like if you've only got a few lines in a play. So he's very generous to walk-on parts. His walk-ons are always rather like Shakespeare, actually, very, very clearly delineated. And they don't just give you what... Um, Renaissance and Restoration writers called a humour, mm. a kind of stereotypical pre-existing quality. He does somehow, through dialect, through individual quirks, he manages to give you a sense of real authentic life in a lot of his minor characters. 
And there's quite a lot of evidence that he did that by direct observation. So when he was a, a recruiting lieutenant in Shrewsbury, um, round about 1703-1704, he became acquainted with a local MP, Sir Michael Bidulph. Uh, and that MP had in his employ a servant called Thomas Bond. Mm. Uh, and there's a report of Thomas Bond dying later in the 18th century. And the report says he was widely understood to be the original of the character Scrub in the Bow's Stratagem. Mm. Um, Scrub is a very strange character because he's, he's intended to be monumentally boring and self-obsessed. <laughs> uh, so you know he has wonderful speeches where he says he bursts in and he says I have important news for you you know there's a gentleman whose name I couldn't find out he's waiting at the gate and I don't know what he wants <laughs> and all of this <clears throat> um, wonderful. so I think you know there's a very clear link anyway between what Farquhar writes and what he experienced and I think a genuine sense as there is obviously in a much greater way with Shakespeare that he's capable of, of absorbing this enormous variety of human existence in his work. Other aspects of which mm. as you touched upon in your um, opening gambit are um, that of the, the, the immigrant emigrant and mm. also that of um, of the representation of women, um, yep. which he's uh, one, one of perhaps the most generous mm. to, um, to to female parts, isn't he? In uh, in uh, well, restoration in, drama, yes, he begins quite conventionally. So that uh, in the constant couple, for example, you know, it's about a man returning from wartime. Um, he's on the search for a, a kind of settled life as heroes of restoration comedy frequently are and a settled life means the most beautiful richest young woman he can possibly find the twist in the constant couple is that he thinks that that woman called angelica is actually a prostitute which probably tells you something about you know farquhar's early view of, of women mm. he had in his life a notorious disaster this is one of the biggest um points of interest in writing his biography he married um probably in 1702 um, he married a widow 10 years older than him who had children he thought she was really well off she thought because he was quite well known as a playwright that he must be quite well off as well um, sometime after the wedding night they discover that neither of them has a penny um, and that was the point, it seems, when he went off and joined the army because there was nothing else he could do. Um, his view of women seems to change after that point, and the most dramatic manifestation of this is in the last play, The Bow's Stratagem, where you have a very um, moving, funny, but quite profound treatment of an unhappy London woman who is married to a kind of horrible country squire bore character sullen mm. um, and in order to realize this character of mrs sullen he drew quite liberally of all things on milton so milton's essay on the doctrine and discipline of divorce mm -hmm. which radically in the 1640s had argued that the prime grounds for divorce should not be adultery 
because Milton argues that if you say that, then that promotes the idea of sex to a position of importance it shouldn't enjoy. Milton argued very controversially that you should allow people to divorce on the grounds of mutual incompatibility, which Mm. seems a very, very modern sentiment and, and, and only one actually that English law caught up with towards the latter part of the 20th century. Um, so he draws quite liberally on that text in creating a sense of some of the intellectual dilemmas that, that Mrs. Sullen faces. Mm. Um, but he faces a problem, of course, because the law was the law at the time. In order to create a happy comic ending, he's got to get her out of there. So he creates this rather artificial solution where a, a sort of negotiated divorce is achieved thanks to the arrival of Sir Charles Freeman, Mrs. Sullen's elder brother, as played by me at the Newman Rooms in Oxford in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, but then there's something slightly moving to me about that as well, that um, you know, we tend to categorise the endings of comedies as kind of cheesy or too easy, pat, whatever. The fact that in the time, Farquhar is only able to imagine this rather fantastic conclusion is ideologically very telling. That's the only way out. He presents us with a kind of dream vision of how much better life could be if we were all just a bit more reasonable with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, again, is quite distinctive for writers of his period. It gives the lie too, doesn't it, to um, comments that he was not well read, I suppose, like like Shakespeare. (laughs) Perhaps not so well read in Latin and uh, and Greek, but but he's he's well read in his Protestant literary heritage, including Milton by the sounds, isn't he? Well, absolutely. And he, Mm. he found in Milton both this, an instinct for liberty. It's not just... Uh, the Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce he had read. He'd clearly read Areopagitica, the great tract against censorship. You see this appearing elsewhere in his work. Mm. But he also found in Milton, rather interestingly, I think uh, an instinct for how you describe vast tracts of space. So Milton's fantastic imagination describing abysses, you know, these great journeys across the universe that Satan coins the term outer space really doesn't yes it? that's so right it's kind of yep that's their science yes. fiction's be- yes. beginnings along, if you like. with, along yes. with terrific <laughs> yes <laughs> and and some that haven't made it through like a pineastrus okay <laughs> it's a miltonic <laughs> word you can you know go ahead and use it um but yes actually in his there's a very very strong milton influence in in a work that farquhar wrote never finished which hardly anyone knows about Um, which was an epic poem, Barcelona. Um, He managed to finish six books of an intended 12, and it's about the siege of Montjuic um, in the Anglo-Spanish conflict, 1703. uh, And he writes this poem in Homeric rhyming couplets. Some of it's awful, it's unfinished, (laughs) but it has great moments in it. And some of the best moments are the ones inspired by Milton, where you have an army crawling up a steep cliff and they look down and see the gulf below, very Miltonic moments. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, people always used to get at him for not being properly educated. He had spent two years at Trinity College, Dublin. Mm. Um, He clearly knew a reasonable amount of Latin and Greek because he 
just wouldn't have been able to study there had he not. Um, he refers very warmly to the writings of Aesop. He regards Aesop as the original comic writer. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly he draws on classical sources throughout his work. Um, but nevertheless, I think this was part of being an outsider and an Irishman. It was an easy dig for, for, for people to make against him. Do you ever feel that you've, you've discovered anything new in, in the archives or in the historical record? Oh, yes. Oh, can, can um, you tell us about some of those things then? Not without spoiling the ending, no. Ah. <laughs> um, the thing, well, um, well, without spoiling the ending, um, I've dug up lots of very, very interesting stuff about the woman Farquhar married and her family, who they were and how actually they already were, you know, precipitately going towards decline. Um, so that's all been fascinating and that has, that, that's lain undiscovered. Um, for centuries. Uh, intriguingly, the tool that got me there is simply signing up to a genealogy site oh, really? and having a good look. Um, the, uh, the reason why I'm not going to tell you more is to do with, this, with the rather strange organisation of the book, which maybe it's useful to talk about. Literary biographies are almost always written in chronological order. You might start somewhere else, you know, you might decide to start with a deathbed scene or the moment when a writer produces a particularly important work or has some significant encounter. But normally a literary biography is a kind of birth to death narrative. Mm -hmm. And quite often literary biographers fall into this trap of finding within an author's childhood things that somehow look ahead, oh, yes. anticipate the, the later romantic work. Romantic yeah, 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 yeah. The formation and that's all... of a poet's mind. And yeah, yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, the flaws with that are obvious because life doesn't work like that. There is no, there's no premonition, um, not unless you're very superstitious. Um, so I was thinking about this and I wanted, I really wanted with this book to do something adventurous with form and not just write a kind of standard birth to death biography. Um, and then I encountered this extraordinary book called Stuart, A Life Backwards by Alexander Masters, yes, which is well, yeah. it's the story of a homeless man. And it's, it's a reverse narrative. So it starts in the present and then as Masters finds out more and more about this wretched man, Stuart, you go further and further into his past. Um, and I thought, ooh, that's rather interesting. Um, partly because I think it chimes well with the kind of disruption and the, the kind of backward pull, the sense of reversion that you get in a lot of migrant writing. Where have I come from? Why does that matter? What it is I'm trying to get away from? Mm. Um, so, the, so the idea of creating that... Um, narrative pull ever 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 and more strongly towards the background the origins not necessarily as a way of explaining in freudian terms what went wrong um, but just because it emphasizes something about or embodies something about the strangely disruptive disturbing effect of having that experience but also just to give the reader a bit of sense of narrative suspense you know gosh where is this going mm -hmm. so actually the biggest single discovery 
is in the last chapter and it, the idea of it is is that it works a bit like a novelistic denouement um, and it's to do with Farquhar's family and what happened to them um, that's a nice way of escaping the kind of terrible teleology of his early death as well isn't it I suppose like because yeah. every, otherwise everything ultimately leads to that tragedy doesn't it so, yeah. yeah yeah yes that's right I wish I'd thought of that um, <laughs> and the other, and that's partly what lies behind the choice of publisher um, which you asked about um, before my last um, two authored books have been from Cambridge University Press um, I've also published quite a lot with Oxford they really only do straight down the line um, slightly more conventionally written kinds of books um, and I was just talking to my friend Claire Cochran um, about a new series that she and Bruce McConaughey at Pittsburgh University are editing for Bloomsbury Academic. It's a new series in uh, theatre history viewed with a particular eye to historical context, but also to, to trying to achieve different, more experimental forms of writing in theatre history. Mm -hmm. So I explained what it was I was doing, and they said, well, we're doing this new series and you know we'd quite like yours to be the first volume in it so i thought oh well that sounds rather nice i did first establish with cambridge that they were probably not going to be interested in it because of the form and they actually said they weren't doing biographies anymore anyway so i don't know um these things happen uh and uh well uh, you know so it's been a there's been the usual sort of toing and froing, getting all of the de details right with the various editors, uh, Claire and Bruce, as well as the the overall editor at Bloomsbury. But it's you know, it's done. They're delightful to work with, and it'll be out in August next year. Um, and um, we'll see what the world makes of it. But I've done so many of these things now, I don't really care. <laughs> I would like it to be read. You know, I want I want actually want to be read and enjoyed more than anything these days hmm. well I think from the sounds of it it will be and I'm very much looking forward to it well I hope so I mean I think there is a, a tendency it's a, under professional pressure of course for academics to write things that are difficult to the point of impenetrability mm -hmm. um, but in these days of uh, you know impact in research and you know valuing the role that academic research has to play in the wider world I think there's an important imperative there to observe. No, I couldn't agree more. I think if if you can't explain things to a non-academic, then perhaps you don't know them well enough. Sometimes. Well done. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what Will, the great William Empson said: if you can't say it in words of one syllable, then you don't know what you mean. Ah, yes, of course. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've spoken, David, about the interesting structure of this new work and, mm. and the need to change publishers to accommodate that. Um, mm. your, your previous biography of Betterton for Cambridge University Press. Um, how, how, how does this project compare to that? And are you carrying any lessons over, or is this a kind of well, I'm, I'm aware, looking back, that that was a very much more conventionally academic exercise. But of course, there's a fundamental difference between the two subjects. Writing about a writer is very different from writing about an actor. Writing about an actor, you could argue, is really tough because you've got almost nothing to go on if they're dead. 
Um, I've never seen him perform, believe it or not. But then an actor, of course, you know, if you analyze the roles that they've performed, you see distinctive lines coming through. Um, Betterton's important as an actor because he is really the first subject of the genre we might call theater criticism. So we do have a reasonably rounded view of what it must have been like to see him in the stage. Um, I did, with him, I adopted quite a broad contextual approach. I didn't go for that sort of old-fashioned style of theatrical biography where you just look at the roles and the relation to the private life and all of those things. I was very keen to look at what he meant symbolically, what his performances meant symbolically in the time in which they were performed. So the relationship to contemporary politics, for example, the relationship between what we know of um, Betterton as a collector. Amazingly enough, Betterton had a really substantial private library and picture collection. Mm. And that was recorded in a volume I edited in 2013, splendidly called Pinacothica Bettertoniana, um, <laughs> Betterton's picture gallery, that means. Uh, and it was the sale catalogue of his goods after he died, but fascinating to see. And, um, you know, lots of people would think, well, hang on, early modern actors, how come they had libraries and picture collections? You know, these are things that aristocrats did, not these kind of marginal figures. Um, so there was, a, you know, there was a lot of material there that simply had not been exploited. I also, in, I think it's really important if you do a big project like this to discover something that is absolutely factually new, mm. um, because that ultimately, this is a bit of an old fashioned view, I tend to think that is more important and more worthwhile than some shift in theoretical paradigm or something, because those come and go, facts stay with you. Mm. Um, in this but, case, but you are in part doing a, a work of recovery on um, yeah. on, on on Farquhar, aren't you? So uh, there's a sense there of reinterpretation oh, in yeah. order to yeah, yeah, yeah. bring bring into the foreground, isn't it? And you so. can't. Yes, of course, you can take nothing for granted when it comes to relating the being to the texts. But nevertheless, that's a challenge that people have found interesting over the centuries, and I suppose. The one of the claims to originality in the Farquhar book is that um, I found a new way of explaining through the concept of migrant criticism what that, how that relationship is best viewed. Mm. By the way, you're calling him Farquhar, and I'm calling him Farquhar. When he was around, it's evident that people had real difficulty with his name. Um, Farquhar orig originally as a name is derived from Scots Gaelic, Fieracha, which means manly, brave, or fierce, courageous, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and originally his family were Scots planters, so they arrived in Ireland only two, three generations before as a result of James I's plantation of Ireland. So he's kind of doubly deracinated, isn't he, when he, by the time he arrives in London? Yes. Absolutely. And then he gets to London, he has this strange name which he probably is pronouncing in kind of Anglo-Hibernian. <laughs> um, and it's evident when you see his name printed in some of the early texts, people haven't got a clue what to deal with it. Mm. So they, you see, for example, Fari Hens as a spelling of his name. <laughs> and then Farghuns 
<laughs> as well. Comes. So there's that, and that sort of accentuates the sense of dislocation. Is it, is it also felt. a kind of mark of disrespect as yes, well absolutely. by commentators? Yeah. yeah. So what the hell does it matter? He's only Irish. Don't need to get his name right. Mm. Granted, of course, that the rules of spelling in that period are not quite fixed anyway. It didn't cause as much upset to people as it would now. There are simply variable spellings of names, as we know from all the different spellings of Shakespeare, mm. um, which persist into the 18th century. Um, but yes, the point about him being doubly deracinated is really interesting, I think. Um, so the family, I suspect, didn't have quite long enough to feel settled in Dublin, and they experience Ireland partly as hostile territory. Mm. When you go back into Farquhar's childhood, um, there's a slightly implausible story about him being involved as a 13-year-old at the Battle of the Boyne, um, but you know Ireland was a place of terrible violence um, yes. 1680s and 1690s when uh, you know you've got um, King William taking over strong old Irish allegiance to James II um, and kind of mob violence sackings horrendous siege of Londonderry uh, which Farquhar must have witnessed as a boy Mm -hmm. um, that was a siege of a Protestant city by an old Irish army, Catholic armies of, of James II, when people were eating dogs and rats in order to survive. My goodness. Um, does, there, does any of this, this violence come out in the works? Well, this is one of the great contradictions, of course. How do you deal with that? Mm. Um, although there is some evidence that Farquhar tried to write a tragedy that was then lost, we simply don't have it. Um, and although he does write about wartime, you know, and the recruiting officer, it's recruiting people for war. Mm -hmm. um, in his plays, he doesn't really encounter this experience directly, but you do see it in the epic poem I mentioned, Barcelona, mm -hmm. and you do see it in the first, probably the first poem he wrote, which is a, a Pindaric ode on the death of General Schomburg at the Battle of the Boyne, uh -huh. which is a kind of teenager's you know, blood-soaked view of violence. It's kind of, you know, orgy of horror, combination of quite graphic violence with mythic stereotypes drawn from classical and biblical literature. Mm. Um, well, these, so, are, these are powerful formative experiences, aren't they? Well, absolutely, <laughs> which, which he obviously felt the need to try and translate into poetry, but poetry in a form that would... Um, as it were, create him as a mainstream classical poet in the way that many of his contemporaries did. And how does he come out in his letters? Is he a, is he a great letter writer? Um, no, you wouldn't say he's one of the great letter writers. Um, he writes in a sort of rather bullish way about going to the tavern a lot and the experiences he's had with women and how terrible his hangovers are and so on and you know how he expects great success and then it turns into terrible failure while at the same time claiming that he's of quite an equable spirit um, so I think he must have been a very complex character he also says interestingly although um, conventionally biographers have referred to the actor Robert Wilkes as a great friend of his Wilkes was also an Irish migrant 
mm. but, a, but a successful one who ended up as one of the three principal theatre managers in London in the early 18th century. People have written about Wilkes as Farquhar's great friend who sort of looked after his kids after he died and so on. In his letters, Farquhar says, I have no close friends. Um, uh, and, uh, and there's some indication, I think, in the um, the material that Farquhar writes about Wilkes to indicate that in some ways he has quite a critical view of Wilkes and who he was. Mm -hmm. And it must have been really difficult. Wil Wilkes was a very successful actor, um, evidently extremely charming. Um, he was in turn, this is the penultimate chapter of the book, Wilkes was in turn the subject of quite a lot of um, disparagement um, from people who thought they knew things about his past in Dublin that he was trying to conceal. They'd alleged that he'd had a secret marriage, that he was a bigamist, that he had illegitimate children, etc., etc. Um, some of that is no doubt the product of anti-Irish feeling. Mm. Um, but there is more than a grain of truth in some of it as well. So that's all rather intriguing to see. The most difficult thing about their relationship must have been that Wilkes was largely outstandingly successful. Mm. Uh, he would, had one. Would he have acted in any of them? Oh yeah. Well, he acted. Um, this is another thing about the biographical tradition. Wilkes acted all of Farquhar's leading roles, with the exception of his first play. Love in a Bottle, so he was the original Harry Wildair, he did that twice, then into the sequel. Mm. He was in The Twin Rivals, he was Plume in The Recruiting Officer, and he played one of the two leads in The Bose Stratagem as well. So this is an obvious answer to those all those people who said that Farquhar's heroes are fantasy Farquhar's. Well actually it's just as likely that they're portraits of Wilkes, his friend and his various portrayals. Mm. Um, uh, and then you get this interesting thing I mentioned earlier, how Farquhar once went back to Dublin and acted in The Constant Couple. He acted the leading role, Sir Harry Wilder, which had been acted five years before with huge success by Wilkes. Now, when actors were trained in this period, they were not trained as, as we train actors to do, to discover the truth of a part from within themselves and their own resources. They copied somebody else who'd done it. <laughs> That was the way actor training happened. Um, so at that performance in Dublin in 1704, it seems to me Farquhar was almost certainly copying the performance of his friend Wilkes, and he couldn't do it. How uncomfortable. Well, how uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Wilkes had been so brilliant at it, and Wilkes had conquered Dublin and London. And then Farquhar does it, and he finds he can't even conquer Dublin. Mm. And his brother won't publish his complete plays. Goodness. Yes. There's much avenues for psychoanalytic exploration well, in this, well, I, I think. think I think there's a great film to be made about him. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Ear of the Other. I've been Thomas Knowles and my guest has been Professor David Roberts. Thank you to Thomas Hall of the School of Media at BCU for his production work. And thank you to my colleague Peter Jackson, whose brainchild the area of the other is. Mm -hmm.